So, uh, hi, if you are someone who shows up every other week, you may not even know who I am, and that's good for you. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, welcome. I'm one of the elders here at Element. If you are new here this morning, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot yours, you can use one to follow along with us this morning. And then if you're like, oh, I should just keep this so I have one in my car, put it in your car so you have them with you. It's always good to have the scriptures with you. All right. Uh, there's also sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room, so you can follow along with what we're doing. Do you have the video on there, too? There should be a video in that. So I'll tell you a quick little story. Right before I left for Haiti, I'm driving down the, the road out here, and there's some crazy driver, like three cars ahead of me, just all over the road. And people are, like, moving out of their way. I'm like, Ugh. and so I finally get it right behind this guy. Element sticker. Back window. So... I don't know who it was, I'm not going to describe the car, but if you got an Elma sticker in the rear window, don't drive like a moron. Thank you very much. We've got a big sign out there. I know, you, you would have thought it would have been me, but it wasn't me. They were in front of me. So I, I did go to Haiti. People are asking a lot of questions about uh, Haiti and our trip and things like that. So we're still processing. There's, there's a lot of stuff from, uh, from Haiti. It's... Uh, it's poorer than you could ever imagine. And so I, I made this video for some guys who are from another church that was there. If you're, listening, if you're listening online, you can go to our website and look at the video that you just missed. So one of the reasons we went there was to help these guys that we know to further their ministry and what they're doing. So that's why we're actually making two five-minute spots like that, two one-minute spots, a half-an-hour documentary of all this stuff that they're doing putting a production packet together to try and get them some support for what's going on. So there you go. You'll learn more in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully, like I said, it's, it's kind of tough when you think about it, all the stuff that's going on. So now that I thoroughly depressed you, <laughs> well, I'll just stay on the ear into God's Word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It's a great verse for what we just saw. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who remember that you are renewing us day by day. And that though many times we don't understand the things that happen to us or around us, you are still a God who sees us through. You are the one who brings everything to fruition in your plan. And so teach us to be a people that trust you. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> this is Esther week 7. Uh, what you're going to get this morning should have been week 6, but I went to Haiti. I'd already written this. James had already written week 7, so we just did the old switcheroo flip-flop on you. If you weren't here last week, awesome. You can hear this, get the podcast. You'll be right in line. For the rest of you, I have faith in you. You're going to be fine. You can follow along and be okay. If you have a Bible, open to Esther chapter 3. That's where we're at. Uh, Esther is the great Old Testament uh, book that is so much sarcasm that tends to sting a little bit when we get too close to it. Today is no different. So far we have seen that there is a Persian king who loves his wine and his women, doesn't have much backbone when it comes to his friends. Uh, his first wife in the story refuses to degrade herself in front of the king's frat buddies, and so she gets removed from her place. She probably gets killed. The king, at the request of his buddies, brings all the best-looking virgins in the entire country to the palace so they can check them out after a year's worth of beauty treatments, and then he eventually chooses a new queen. This queen is a woman named Esther, who is a Jew, but the king doesn't know she is a Jew. 
Two weeks ago, what you saw is that her uncle Mordecai saves the king from a plot to kill him. This week is now five years from that point. Esther has become queen, and today you get to meet a guy named Haman. If you are here last week, you get to meet Haman again. Esther chapter 3, verse 1 says... After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than, all, higher than that of all the other nobles. Now, everything in Esther up to this point has been backstory. How Esther becomes queen, who Mordecai was, the real story starts here. It starts in what we see today. Haman's name, as well as his father's name, they are both Persian names, but the text is clear to tell you that Haman himself is not Persian. He is an Agagite. It's important for us to know this. Hebrew writers put things in Scripture so you and I would know that there's more going on. So leave your finger in Esther chapter 3 and then flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's right before 2 Samuel. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, Haman is associated with a descendant of an Amalekite king known as Agag. Okay? If I know terrible name, you don't want to name your kids Agag because it sounds like they can't swallow their food at dinner. And that's, that's his name. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 7 says this, Then Saul, who was the king of the Israelites at that point, attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Now, this is also important. Why is Saul attacking these people? Leave your finger in 1 Samuel and Esther and flip over to Genesis chapter 25. You're like, oh my goodness, we're going to look at the Bible today? Yes! Imagine that, we're going to look at the Bible today. For the background of this, you have to go to two guys named Jacob and Esau. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, like the patriarchs of the, of the Hebrew faith. Abraham's son is Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Jacob and Esau. Genesis chapter 25, verse 22 says, When the time came for her, that's their mother, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. These boys represent God's favor versus man's choice. We are told that Esau, he is very manly in the chauvinistic sense. He is big, uh, he is hairy, he's like the guy at the beach who takes off his shirt, and you can't tell he took off his shirt. That's, that's Esau, he likes to hunt, he likes to kill, he likes to eat what he kills. He's like a big red Chewbacca. And his daddy loves him for the fact that he is the way he is. Jacob, on the other hand, Jacob is smooth-skinned. He doesn't like to work real hard. He likes to get pedicures, go shopping with his mom. And he likes it. He likes 80s rock ballads. He's got feathered hair. Uh, and his mommy loves him for the fact that he is the way he is. And what you begin to see in the story is that the parents have chosen sides. The children choose sides because the parents have chosen sides. And everyone seems to forget that choosing a side over choosing God makes the side you choose your God. So before Rachel, their mother, becomes pregnant, she is barren. She really wants children. So Isaac, like a good husband, seeks God on behalf of his wife and prays, please let my wife have some children. And God answers the prayer. God actually gives them two kids instead of just one. It's a great blessing. It's a great blessing. And, and we do not know why God determines to do certain things, but He does. In Genesis 25, 21, God says, The older will serve the younger. So Jacob will be greater than Esau. Why does God do this? We don't know. 
We don't know. It was, but it was his decision. And Isaac responds like most parents do who disagree with God. He ignores him. He ignores him. I, Isaac loves Esau. Esau is his boy. He wants the promises of God's promise to go to his boy. This blessing instead of going to Jacob, to Esau. Isaac does everything he can to bring about this blessing to his boy. Not because Isaac is evil or hated God, but because he loves his son. And because he would do anything in the world for his son. But sometimes even something as noble as loving something, when and if you love the wrong thing with full devotion, can bring about drastic consequences. Now Rachel, on the other hand, again, Rachel loves Jacob. They are not innocent in this mess either. They're supposed to trust God, that God's going to bring the promise about like he says he is going to, but they don't trust him. So Rachel schemes and makes plans to trick Isaac, who at this point is, is blind from some sickness. He's very old, so that Isaac will give the blessings himself to Jacob. Now, the firstborn blessing was, in a sense, who your family was. It was your heritage. It was, it, your family was you. When this blessing was handed to you, the family was you. So his mom hatches his plan. Jacob goes along with the plan his mother makes, ends up cheating his hairy, manly, likes-to-kill brother and his blind old dad to get what God had already promised him in the first place would be his. Esau gets so angry about being cheated by his brother, he is so out of control that he makes plans to kill his brother. And he is a guy who could carry out those threats. He's like, a, he's like Chuck Norris. With, with all restraint removed and he was free to use his fighting scales on mere mortals like you and I. It's like Ted Nugent in sandals. It's, you're a tough crowd this morning. So he gets mad and, and all of a sudden Jacob, he runs. He's like, my brother's going to kill me. So he runs and throughout all uh, or much of Israel's history, this division that started between these two brothers, this taking of sides, this losing sight of God, plagued Israel's descendants and Jacob's descendants for generations. Hundreds of years later, you get to the accounts recorded in the book of Exodus. Jacob's descendants are still plagued by the fallout from this failure to reconcile. After God sets the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt, they distrust God about taking them into the promised land, so they wander around in the desert for 40 years. During this time, it is a tribe known as the Amalekites who for no apparent reason constantly fall upon and attack the Jews. The Amalekites' relentless persecution of the Jews caused rabbinic tradition to actually start looking at every enemy of the Jewish people somehow tracing back to Amalek. Amalek is a man who is a tribal leader of a group called Edom. and The Amalekites as a people embodied all of Israel's injuries in a real and poetic way. Uh, and so scriptures, uh, the scriptures show and rabbis teach that Amalek is descended from a woman named Timnah. Jewish legend teaches that Timnah was at one time in love with Jacob. Jacob. She's in love with Jacob. Jacob didn't care about her, didn't give her the time of day, and kind of sent her on her way. And as her advances get turned away, she then becomes the concubine of Jacob's nephew, who is whose son? Esau. Esau. See, you're following. This is really good. In Genesis 36, 12, it says, Esau's son Eliphaz also had a concubine named Timnah who bore him Amalek. Timnah is bitter over Jacob's rejection and turns her life over to a family completely sold out to the destruction of Jacob's family, seeing them wiped out. She is raised to hate Jacob. She in turn teaches her son to hate Jacob. 
Do you see the not-so-subtle in the story if you're a Jew? This is Haman. Here's the warning. This guy is going to try to annihilate the Jews again. Let's go back to Esther chapter 3. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Okay. Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Why? He's an Amalekite. But there's more to this also as well. So far through Esther, the, the writer has tried to give you clues about who Mordecai actually is. In Esther 2.5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. So in 1 Samuel, go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Like how this all fits together. Amazing. It really is. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. says, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was what? Kish. Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zoar, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Whose descendant is Mordecai? Saul, whose descendant is Haman? He's an Agag, he's an Amalekite. He's an Amalekite. Do you see this? The war is coming. Check. Wow, exactly. Three verses, and it's like, I got the whole scriptures. That, that's amazing. Exactly. Verse 3, Esther chapter 3, verse 3. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? And he said, It's a long story. Now, he said, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Ah, see, there you go. He destroyed my people. I'm going to destroy his. Haman in the story is an egomaniac. He is more concerned about his image and having a Jew bow down to him than any semblance of what is right. He is consumed by his self-importance. He is consumed by his emotions. And you know what? It sounds just like us. It sounds just like us. Someone hurts us or offends us, and we want them hurt as well. As a matter of fact, we want them hurt more than we were hurt so they understand how bad we are hurt. We want people to feel our pain and our wrath. This is where much of the story of Esther goes. People with uncontrolled retribution who do not know how to forgive. That's where Esther goes. Haman, he is all about his image, his outer self at the cost of his soul. We are people who can be so tempted to place all our focus on our outer selves so people see this thing rather than figure out what's going on in our own souls. When our pride gets hurt, someone does something to us. We want people, oh no, it's fine. When it's not fine, when it's killing you inside and you just want them to hurt. But I will tell you, one day, all that hurt pride of yours will one day go away. But you are a being who will never cease to exist. Your spirit... Who God is creating you to be is in the process of becoming something. We call this sanctification in big Christian word. You are either going to become something unbelievably full of grace and life or something unimaginably dark. 
That something is what God sees and wants to make you into, this something full of life and grace and goodness and truth. That is what matters to him. Paul, all throughout the New Testament, constantly keeps telling us how his body is headed toward decay. I mean, Paul, Paul if you read the historical accounts, he was never a, a rock star or a movie star anyway. One of the criticisms people had of Paul is when they met him in person, he just wasn't very impressive. I mean, he had been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and whipped and locked up in a cell. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, the first verse I read to you, he says, therefore we, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Outside, his outward person, it is dying every single day, but inside he is coming to life. Inside he is growing and changing, and he keeps getting stronger. Joy keeps bubbling up, even in the midst of his circumstances. He keeps getting more hopeful, even though he knows his body is going to die soon. He keeps loving more people, even the people that threw him in jail. It's the strangest thing. Paul's like, I'm dying on the outside, but inside I am coming to life. Paul's desires and thoughts constantly ran towards God. And he finds himself as an old man sitting in prison, again, again, more alive than he'd ever been in his life. Now, Oscar Wilde uh, wrote this book years ago uh, called The Picture of Dorian Gray. I don't know if anybody ever read, but should have made a Twilight Zone out of it is what they should have done, cause, but they didn't. It's a story about a guy who essentially sells his soul for ceaseless youth and beauty. Everyone marvels at his eternal youthfulness that he has, but the beauty actually hides the soul that is full of greed and lust and betrayal. He gets this painting, and somehow he exchanges basically his soul for this painting, so he always looks young and beautiful. And everything that he does, every act of deceit, every betrayal, murder, is reflected in the painting, but not upon him. And initially, the face in the painting, it's as handsome as, as he is. But as sin begins to reflect on the canvas, it looks worse and worse and worse. So he takes this and he hides it up in his attic. And in the end, when death finally comes for him, the painting is who he really has become. Dorian Gray is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul was. Outwardly, Dorian Gray is renewed day by day. Everybody envies his beauty, but inwardly he is wasting away. And when I read this book, I'm going through it and I'm thinking, wow, how would we live differently if the condition of our souls were as visible as the condition of our bodies? What would that look like? I mean, you and I don't have a painting, but we have the soul. And if we did have the painting, what would it look like? Would we look like Haman? Would would we be full of bitterness and anger and resentment because we just cannot forgive and we can't get over hurts that were done to us? That is how Haman looks. In verse 7, it says, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, uh, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So here's the plan. I got the day. He goes to the king. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Now, if we are honest, this is also just like us. We always want to play the victim. But we're all like Haman. See if this resembles you trying to get what you want. Haman starts off with the truth. There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. That's the truth. He goes to a half-truth whose customs are different from those of all other people. That's kind of half true. It ends with a lie. Who do not obey the king's laws. 
So truth, half truth, lie to get what he wants is not in the king's best interest. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Instead of saying his great granddaddy beat up my great granddaddy, and I'm really irritated, and I want to kill them all. Instead of saying that, this is what he does. So the king listens to his advisor. Verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Then the author now adds this, in case you missed it earlier, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors with uh, the governors of various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Now, when you see what James talked about last week, if you were here, you're like, oh, that's why they were tearing their clothes and freaking out. That is why. And before you go home and you can't sleep tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin the story. I'm going to give you the end, you know, because if you read it already, you, you know. But this is a story about God saving the day, that the Jews do not get destroyed. But what you see happens in the, in the act of them getting saved, they will now do the same act that was going to be perpetrated on them upon other people. They're going to do that exact same thing. Over and over and over in Scripture, we are told that we are not righteous. I don't care how good you think you are. You are not good. Only God is good. And when you think you're good, it's because you're comparing yourself with somebody else who's not as good as you are, and that is not good because you're full of pride. Not good. When God spoke to the Israelites about the Amalekites, but uh, he, he does this in Deuteronomy. God speaks to them about the Amalekites. This is before they enter their promised land. God gives them an injunction in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19. This is what God says. Remember the Amalekites. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and they cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Now that's an interesting statement. Do not forget. Many people believe and they actually teach that this is a vindictive action of God. That God is saying, these are my people, they have hurt them, and now I want them destroyed from under heaven. Anybody who would stand against Jacob's people as being prominent in history, we're going to take those people out. But I don't think so. If you actually read the Hebrew in that, it can actually say that God could be saying, don't forget to forget. That what they have done to you, you must blot that out of your memory, or you will never become the people I am calling you to be. You will never be those people. What God does is He comes and He takes our, all of our own personal actions of evil, our self-centeredness and pain, and finds miraculous ways to change those into something that can be used for His glory. God is the only one who can take all the evil you have ever perpetrated on other people, all the evil perpetrated upon you, and make it into something good to make you into the people you are supposed to be. We are called to let go of the evil that has been done to us so we can become the type of people God intends for us to be. This concept is repeated over and over in the scriptures. Every story, every action, every word, because all scripture is about God. And this even happens in Esther, which you'll eventually see. 
there is a thought among some Jewish scholars that says the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when they are understood fully, and you can actually speak all of that in one breath, the entire Torah in one breath, it will be read as one long, uninterruptible name of God. Now, if that is true, it would mean in the middle of God's name it says, don't forget to forget. Don't forget to forget. Why? Because if Israel didn't learn to forget about all the evil that had been done to them in this world, they would never, ever become the blessing in the world that they were called to be. They didn't learn to forget. They would be consumed by their victimhood. They didn't learn to forget. They would forever make their future about their past. They didn't learn to forget. They would never go into the nation and people they were supposed to be. And this goes for you and I as well. It is imperative for us and all of humanity, just like the Israelites, to be those that remember to forget. You forget your wounded pride. You remember your God. You forget your pain. You remember the one who can truly heal you. You forget the weakness and remember the source of your strength. Remember to forget. Or we too, we plague by all of these past deeds and never become who you were meant to be. Ever. We will simply continue to be divided by what we love more than we love God. We will not be brought together by our connection in Christ. We'll be divided by our hurt and our pain. The Hebrew word for remember is the word zakar. Say zakar. I know it sounds like a crazy video game, I know. But zakar has this connotation that when you remember something, it changes who you are. It changes how you act. It changes how you treat other people. It essentially means, uh, in our vernacular, that those who have a relationship with Jesus will will remember that they have a relationship with Jesus to the extent that they act like they have a relationship with Jesus so everyone around them will know they have a relationship with Jesus. Remember, forget, remember, forget, remember. It's not contradictory. It goes hand in hand. We are called to forget what brings us bitterness. We are told to remember God. The implications in failing to remember God would mean, in a sense, with this word, that we would have abandoned Him. When we forget God and remember the pain, it is the exact opposite of what God God calls us to do. And we end up people like Haman. I mean, think of the money that our world would save in therapy bills and medication and late-night infomercials if we just learned how to forget and learned how to follow who God calls us to be. Chapter 3 ends like this. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. They're bewildered because they don't have the same anti-Semitism that the king and his right-hand guy have. Now, let me see if I can make this make sense to you in in modern-day vernacular. Uh, I love movies. I love movies. Uh, I like explosions and special effects and juvenile humor and men who are men and women who need saving you know, happy endings. I love that. And this is really bizarre because one of my favorite movies is a movie called Memento. Okay? I, and Memento has neither of those. Okay? It's, it's, it's none of that. It has no happy endings, zero closure. Uh, and so if you haven't seen it, I'm going to tell you about it. Sorry. Uh, in Memento, everybody has a problem. Everybody does. And the problem is that you don't know who to believe or who to trust. There's a guy, his name is Leonard. Leonard is an insurance agent. And he's got this short-term memory that's been destroyed. He can't make new short-term memories. This happens because he tries to intervene in his wife's murder. And he gets hurt in the middle of it. She still dies. And yet, all of his short-term memories, his brain gets affected to the point that he cannot make new short-term memories. So what he starts to do is to remember anything that is important. He starts to tattoo these things on his body or take Polaroids and write himself little notes. 
Leonard, again, can make no new memories. Nothing sticks in his mind. And Leonard desperately wants revenge on his wife's murder. It's the last memory ingrained in his mind. Every day, Leonard wakes up with the last thing that he remembers is his wife being killed. It could be years later. That's the first thing he wakes up with. And he starts going through his life like three or four hours later. He forgets everything he just did in the last three or four hours. And just like Haman, I think the same way Haman wakes up every day with his hurt just fresh in his mind every day for some past deed of the Jews. Now, what good would it do for Leonard to kill the guy who killed his wife when the next day he's not going to remember it anyway? Imagine Leonard finds the killer. He kills the killer, which in the movie he does. Then he wakes up the next day still looking for the killer. See, Leonard actually gets used by people in, in the movie who understands condition to get him to create, just to do atrocious crimes, even taking the life of a man who had nothing to do with his wife's death. How miserable is a life that cannot let go and forget the evil that has been done to it? Leonard wants to remember all he cannot, and he wants to forget all that he remembers. And our hearts suffer from that same condition as Haman and Leonard. And we seem to be able to only focus on something that has caused us great harm. And we start to interpret all of our life based upon that moment. We remember this this pain and this anger. And we forget the love and the joy and the connection that we should all share with one another in Christ. It is the opposite of what God calls us to. We must be a people who learn how to forget what is killing us. A people who remember Jesus who longs to give us life. A people who make new memories to replace the pain of the old. We must be a people who offer the same grace and mercy shown to us by Christ, the same mercy that we crave. We must show that to other people as well. The only way for this to take place is through the redeeming work of Christ. Our death for His life, our sin for His grace. None of us are innocent, but Jesus can redeem your life. But you have to quit holding on to the pain, the anger, And you have to let it go. And you have to lay yourself in His arms so He can make you into the person that you need to be to be His child. You have to let go. You've got to forget and remember, forget and remember who God is. Let go. Remember. You know, communion is something that's supposed to remind us of that every single week. We come to communion, remember what Christ has done for us. His grace has been so good to us, and yet we have treated Him like garbage most of our lives. And so we lay down before Christ all of our pain, all the things that we have done, and we take His grace and forgiveness upon us. And we live and walk a new life. I mean, communion, when you break that cracker, it's representative of His body broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice, it's representative of His blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be a people of grace and mercy, a people who remember what we're supposed to remember and forget what we're supposed to forget. The band's going to come up. Do a couple songs. And as they do, before you take communion this morning, take a moment and kind of run through those things that you have in the back of your mind of, of the pain that is, that is causing you not to be the person God calls you to be. Before you take communion, lay that down at Christ's feet so that you can walk out of here more forgiving, more loving, more God-honoring because of who He calls you to be. Live differently than when you walked in here. Because God doesn't want you to live your life marked with pain. He wants you to live your life marked in hope, and love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. 
If you are somebody who is stuck in a whole lot of pain, you can't get past it, there'll be deacons and elders in the back, and they would love to pray for you. And maybe that's your first step of being able to forget and remember who God is. Uh, we worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall and in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We worship God through fellowship. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. And again, you will get to know some other people. And as you get to know some other people, they will drive you nuts. You'll get some more pain and hurt, and you can practice Christianity just by meeting people in the back. It's wonderful. <laughs> we are called to spur one another on to be who God calls us to be. So I'm spurring you guys on as best I can. Let go of the pain. Remember Christ. Remember Christ because He is good. Don't be a Haman. Don't be a Haman. Let's pray. Father, this morning I do ask that you would uh, teach us to be a people who let go of all the things we're supposed to let go of and remember that your hands enfold us strongly. That we are a people who can stop striving and simply rest in your hands. And then begin to walk in the paths that you call us to walk in. God, help us to be a people who uh, daily read your word so we understand more of this grace and goodness. Help us to be a people who spend time with you daily in prayer as you reveal yourself to us and our souls more and more. Help us be in fellowship with other believers who spur us on, sometimes by being pained. <laughs> that you are a good God who sees us through all of this stuff. So today, do a mighty work in our hearts so that we truly become the children that you call us to be. So the world knows that there's something different about us because our God is great and good. Amen.